Hey everyone, I'm Haley Bloom-Peterson and this is Our Stories, Our Health. We're here to share your stories, your experiences with our so-called healthcare system, to shed some light on the ways in which it fails us, the ways others profit off of us, to show you that you're not the only one who can't figure this whole thing out. We all have stories and in telling those stories, we become the vehicle for wholesale change. The Minnesota State Fair starts today, and it's something that a lot of us really missed last year, myself included. But with the Delta variant of the coronavirus rapidly spreading throughout the state, and the lack of crowd control measures and mask or vaccine mandates at the fair, a number of us are going to be skipping the Great Minnesota Get-Together this year. Earlier this month, the Minnesota Council on Disability announced that they will not be attending the fair this year and highlighted just how often decisions are made without consideration of Minnesotans with disabilities. I talked to the council's executive director, David Dively, about this decision and some of the work of the Minnesota Council on Disability. Hi, my name is David Dively, and I'm the executive director for the Minnesota Council on Disability. And a little bit about our agency. We're about four decades old, and we are an independent state agency, which means that I think the easiest way to explain it is we're kind of like a nonprofit stuck inside of a big state government organization. So we have a, a governing council who is collectively my boss or supervisor, which is made up of governor appointed council members who then become independent after they're appointed. And then I, I have a staff that I work with, quote unquote, below me, although I kind of like to think of it as a, a flat circle and not so much a, a triangle of, of hierarchy, but regardless. So there's about seven of us. Um, we actually are just celebrating a new hire today, uh, Brittany Wilson to our team, which we're very excited to add her, her strengths and skills. And so we have a, a really broad mandate legislatively, and this is all before many of the current disability rights laws that were passed. And so some of that is reflected in our mandate, but basically our charge uh, by the legislature is to be an independent agency, which means that we don't fall under the, the governor or any legislator's authority for policy positions. So we kind of stand alone in that way. And our job is to advocate for people with disabilities, students with disabilities, their families, across the whole state, across all types of disabilities and across all parts of life. So from birth and early identification and providing those services when they're young to education, to, to health, to employment, to healthy aging, uh, community integration and social emotional learning, uh, all the way to uh, hopefully a, um, you know, a, a nice long lived life. So um, we, we're quite broad and we have, uh, a wonderful staff that kind of works to try to make that happen. And how long have you been with the agency? Yeah, so I'm one of those quote-unquote COVID hires. So I worked previously at the Minnesota Commission for the Deaf, Deaf, Blind, and Hard of Hearing. And that is a other independent state agency that is disability-focused. So it focuses on those three communities, uh, folks who are culturally deaf, who use sign language, people who are hard of hearing, who may or may not use sign language, and then the the deafblind community of Minnesota, of which we are one of the states with the higher population of, of deafblind folks. So uh, early September of 2020, I came on board 
here uh, at the Council on Disability, and it's been very exciting, and it's been wonderful to work with other folks with uh, different disability expertise areas and specializations. My background is in the culturally deaf world. I am hard of hearing, uh, but I was not born that way. And my parents are both culturally deaf and use American Sign Language. Uh, so I come from from that world of dis- that disability community, if you will. And then I've, as I've grown in my professional career, kind of expanded beyond that into advocating for intellectual developmental disabilities, mobility disabilities, and so forth. Um, on a side note, I watched the movie Coda um, last yes. weekend. Have you have you seen it? Have you heard about it? I gotta admit, I'm a little bit resistant to it. So I am a Coda. Right. Um, that's why I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. And um I I I have Apple TV Plus. I have the it's in my my I don't know what you call it, the the to be watch list mm-hmm. when I open up when I turn on my Apple TV. Um I just haven't uh jumped on it. There's one of the actors is actually from Duluth. Um we have a couple other actors that are are well known in the, in the film. It was a Cannes Film Festival, you know, uh, awardee. So my my wife keeps getting on me that I need to watch it, uh, partially to kind of support my people, so to speak. Um, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, yeah. It, the one thing that is odd about that movie, and one thing, well, I should start by saying one thing that's great is that there are there's a, a good cultural representation there, although it's impossible to represent everybody's perspectives of and backgrounds. Um, but there's no actual CODAs uh, in the movie, like in real life CODAs. The uh, people, all the actors and actresses are deaf or hearing. Um, so that that is kind of one little odd part to it. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I don't have any opinions on the actual movie itself. Uh, although I never thought I would see that becoming a, a term that, people outside of my kind of bubble were aware of. So. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as someone who is hearing and has been always, you know, mostly been around people who are hearing, um, it was a movie we didn't, I watched with my parents and we didn't really know what it was about going into it. Um, we just kind of clicked on it. Cause I think my dad saw, Oh, I saw something good about this. And we were, it was a really like emotional story. Um, but in a good way. It didn't feel like corny. Um, That's good. Yeah. And, but I think, you know, there, I'm sure there is like plenty of nuances and things that I will just not understand in, especially just like watching it for the first time. But I did think that it kind of hit the the nail on the head in terms of like, when I watch a fictional story or when I read a piece of fiction, um, like the, I think the best fiction is something that like, brings you into a world that you have no idea about and makes you feel like you um, come away with it with some understanding, even, you know, not full understanding, but just like at least an awareness of it. And it definitely did that. Um, That's great were, to hear. Yeah. There were a couple of like really, just really powerful scenes that I think, um, I, I think more so highlighted for me how much as like a able-bodied person, I don't necessarily think about disabilities in my yeah. day-to-day. So I think that part at least is very, very good for anyone who's not in a situation of um, having some sort of disability. Yeah, that, that's a good insight into it. So the the only parallel I've really heard so far, and I don't know if it's true, again, I haven't seen it, but it sounds like it could be based on who, who acted in it and the, the storyline, the general theme of it I'm aware of, is that uh, there's an older film called Mr. Holland's Opus that mm-hmm. was uh, popular and that was kind of a film that was 
certainly about deaf folks, but the audience was clearly intended to be uh, people who are not deaf or hearing. And, and it really touched a lot of hearing people's hearts, especially those who are really passionate about music. Um, my, what I've heard is that this is kind of like uh, Mr. Holland's opus, uh, but the audience is clearly targeted towards deaf people. So that's kind of the parallel that I've heard um, in how yeah. they're similar and how they're different, but I'll have to see for myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely a good watch, but um, I can understand um, any hesitation as someone within a community. Anyway, we're not here to talk about movies, I guess. <laughs> no, that's okay. I like that little tangent. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's rather timely. Okay. So on August 8th, the Minnesota Council on Disability released a letter um, about the upcoming state fair. Can you tell me a little bit about what was in that letter? Yeah, absolutely. So we, I think it's important maybe if we take a little step back for some kind of context on why the state fair is so important to our agency. So we do a lot of our programming, honestly, that is directly connecting our agency staff council members, volunteers, and actually we host maybe 10 or 12 different nonprofits or smaller groups who don't have the capacity to run the state fair. It's actually tens of thousands of dollars to, to run a booth at the fair. And um, you have to be open the entire time. You, you can't close. You have to staff the entire time. So it's, it's quite the lift for such a small group uh, the size of our team. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a primary way for us to engage, work with, distribute information, uh, help people advocate. You know, they come to us and they say, hey, this is happening at my workplace or in my home, if, if it's like a rental facility, um, things like that. And we would provide them resources or help them advocate through their situations. So this was a, a one of our primary programmatic ways of reaching the communities that we serve. And it was a, a significant way. We had teachers that uh, would come to us wanting curriculum so they could teach their students. This is for general education classrooms. Or we would bring in uh, athletes with disabilities, musicians with disabilities, artists with disabilities, and have everyday folks, kind of like the Coda movie, uh, see what they may have not ever thought about before. And what does it look like to have someone who plays basketball but uses uh, an adaptive wheelchair to move around the court? Or... Um, someone that has a different kind of disability that is also an artist and sings. And so really bringing some of the cultural and the kind of medical, so to speak, aspects together in an experience for folks who aren't used to it. We also work with a lot of legislators, commissioners, leaders who would come to our booth and they would hear directly from people. And one of our jobs we see is to kind of bridge those gaps together. Government can be very intimidating and bureaucratic. And so if whenever we can bring folks directly in contact with leaders and decision makers, we feel like that's a positive thing. So that was the backdrop to this conversation that we had as a staff before this letter was issued. And uh, again, I'm a COVID hire, so this would have been my first state fair. And so we really heavily depended on some of the the staff who had been there for a while to, to give context for me and for our team about this decision. Going back as far as uh, April or May, because we were we're actually part of the joint um, incident command structure for the state of emergency for COVID-19, ensuring that folks with disabilities uh, have access to PPE, to immunization shots, to testing, all those things when they were rationed at different points over the last 18 months. 
so we were in the partially in the loop on some of the more sensitive or um, private information about what was happening. And so even back in, in maybe May or April, we started having conversations about what could our state fair presence look like. And to be honest, initially, this is even before Delta really took off, we, we had some strong skepticism, not about the safety of the fair, but about what would it look like if we heard all these stories from people, people who use personal care attendants, people who use support service providers to live independently on their own, who depend on them for independent living skills. I mean, even down to hygiene and toileting that didn't get those services for days and days at a time. And what kind of kind of dehumanizing experience that would be for then us to go to the state fair. And this is again, pre Delta for the most part and have a big celebration. We felt like that message was just so challenging that we really need to rethink how we do this. Mm -hmm. And at that point where we were kind of strategizing this, this presence that we wanted to do, we decided we should make our, our pre, uh, while reaching out to the state fair for guidance on safety protocols at the time, they didn't have anything they were able to share. Um, we decided that maybe the best way we could do this was create a, a short kind of produced documentary where people shared their experiences, their challenges, their barriers, and really spotlight some of the systemic barriers that COVID-19 put a spotlight on for folks with disabilities as both by itself, just the COVID issue, but also some of the larger society level barriers that we have in place. That So it kind of works at two levels. Then if you fast forward a few months, we have, you know, Delta takes off. We now decide we need to have another set of meetings as a staff. So we initially had our, our, our kind of game plan. It was going to be more somber, more educating the community, shining a light on some systemic ableist issues to can we go at all? And so we kind of had this progression and we started talking. We knew about, this is back now, about a month ago, we knew that we were looking at having a spike uh, about between now and the next three weeks or so from when we're recording. And uh, we still expect that to happen. uh, But of course, no one knows for sure, Mm -hmm. just projecting. And we thought, well, uh, the people we serve, if they can't go, should we go? Uh, there are still some people that we could still reach. You know, there is a value in that. Uh, if we don't go, we're going to miss out on those um, opportunities to meet with commissioners, kind of off the record, have conversations, meet with legislators, the governor's office where they would come and, and meet people. So so we're going to lose a lot as an agency, but what are we doing uh, for our council members with disabilities? Half of our council by statute is required to have a disability. For our, In our case, it's it's significantly more than that. Um, we have staff members with disabilities. So what kind of message are we sending out? What what can we do? And at this point now we're in uh, late July, early August, and we still had no formal guidance from the fair. And I should, I should note that this is about the fair, but it's also about city and county leadership as well. So after Governor Waltz uh, rescinded those executive orders, he, my understanding is he doesn't have the authority to required masking or, or any kind mm-hmm. of other protocols, but cities and counties still do along with the fair. Right. And so we thought, well, um, maybe we have to drop this. This is after it, tens of thousands of dollars in our small budget uh, being invested into preparing for the fair. And 
Uh, we have council members who are, our, again, our, our governing board, and we have staff who are very passionate about it, personally and professionally. And we came to the conclusion that if we were there, we would kind of be saying that everything is okay, don't worry about it, just come. And we were worried that if some people saw uh, our agency there, they would think that it was safe for them to be there as well. And we thought ethically and morally that that wasn't really true. Uh, there are specific disability communities that have uh, significantly more of a negative effect or comorbidity to COVID-19 and some that have significantly less. Um, but what message are we sending to society by, by going there? And then, so that's when we decided that we needed to back out and we needed to do it in a way that, that shone a, uh, shined a light uh, to our council and uh, to get their buy-in and also to leadership. And we did not expect it to make this kind of wave, to be honest. And so we did look to leadership. We did look to um, state fair organization members and say, you know, what can we do? Uh, there are a few different levers to pull, so to speak, whether it's masks, vaccines, crowd limits, and, and we got nothing, you know, we got mm -hmm. none of those. And at that point, we hadn't reached the 5% positivity rate for COVID-19 tests. We're well past that now, and I think around 5.5% statewide. So that's considered substantial spread by the CDC. Um, the Delta variant is twice as uh, transmissible for youth as the kind of original variant and original COVID was. And those people are not able to get vaccinated uh, people with IDD, Down syndrome are significantly more likely to get negative COVID-19 outcomes. Um, hospitalizations among youth were beginning to increase. And so all, everything was going in the wrong direction. And we didn't want to reinforce that, uh, whether they're financial policy or logistical, logistical uh, decisions, that people with disabilities can be a, a deprioritized community. We felt like that would really conflict with the reason for having our, our agency to begin with. And so, so those are some of the reasons. And we wanted this to also be an opportunity for some social conversations about centering the voices of people with disabilities because they're often not a part of the conversation or they're a secondary part of the conversation when we make laws or rules or policies about everything. Yeah, in the, um, I think there's one part of the letter that really stood out to me. Um, and it said, this lack of action continues the trend of deprioritizing marginalized communities. These policies or lack of policies appear to be overlooking Minnesotans with disabilities and other marginalized communities, making people's health a secondary priority. And I just thought that was uh, really striking um, to be the, the way that it kind of took this sort of acute, you know, specific instance, you know, backing out of the fair but pulling it into the wider conversation. Um, so I, I, I'm wondering if we could, if you could talk a little bit more about that phrase continues the trend. What are some of, what are some of these trends? How are policy decisions um, having inequitable effects on Minnesotans with disabilities in both in a COVID sense, but also just a general sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And and thank you for, for pointing out that. That that was one of our intentions. And so I'm glad that that came through in our in our writing. When we create systems, whether they're health systems or decisions about events, decisions about what kind of services or rights people have, whether 
They're about how our schools are going to operate. When we are inclusive of everybody in that process and we really think about how this will impact everybody, I think the end result is better. When we add curb cuts or curb ramps to sidewalks, they were legally designed for folks with disabilities, but so many people benefit from strollers to bicycles to carts. And then, of course, the folks who use wheelchairs are folks who are, are blind or, or low vision and and you utilize that as an accessibility right. When we ensure websites are more accessible for folks with disabilities through digital accessibility laws and rules, it makes them easier to navigate. It makes them easier to find when you use a search engine. When we caption videos, that they're easier to find in Google because those platforms know what's exactly inside those videos and they're easier to consume and watch. And we see that through social media now that captioning videos for audiences who aren't folks with disabilities has become very common. And so we think that the alternative, which is to think of just maybe one demographic or one type of person and, and design policies or ideas around that is really implicitly saying to other folks that you're not welcome or we don't care as much about what you may need or want as other people. And, and we don't think that's an acceptable way to, to run our society. We really want to encourage an interdependent society where we think of others, where we are considerate of others, and where we are willing to do things to, specifically in this case, to enhance the safety and, and livability or life expectancy of others. And so um, we don't think that creating alternative situations where people with disabilities just aren't invited or aren't able to attend is really an acceptable way for us to move forward. Mm-hmm. And the phrase of using marginalized communities is intentional uh, because it's not just aging Minnesotans, it's not just Minnesotans with disabilities, but we, we know that Minnesotans with disabilities are also more likely to be uh, people who belong to communities of color. So there's a, a huge intersection between disability and racial and ethnic uh, marginalized groups. And so that phrase marginalized communities was intentional to kind of be a broader umbrella of, of inclusivity there. So when we have conversations about, you know, what should we do about Medicare? What should we do about Medicaid? What should we do about public health? What should we do about education standards, uh, civil rights, access to voting, um, collecting data, all, all of these contexts uh, folks with disabilities are not a primary, maybe not even a secondary part of that conversation. So as an example, um, the Minnesota Department of Health right now at the state level does not collect data on disability. We collect it on race, ethnicity, age, uh, gender, county. Um, uh, I think there's a few other categories I'm missing, uh, but we don't collect it on disability. And not only do we want it on uh, having a disability or not, but we'd really like to see it broken up by types of disabilities because they're also different. We also see that when it comes to policing, people with disabilities are more likely to have a negative outcome or an increased escalation in a law enforcement encounter. This is not unlike communities of color. Um, and employment, employment for communities of color is 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 not as is not as strong in Minnesota as it is for kind of our white Minnesotan, uh, typical Minnesotan that you might think of. But Minnesotans with disabilities, certain disability populations have upwards of 50% unemployment. 
So if you take a person of color and has a disability, uh, it's a tremendous systemic barrier. So when we make all of these decisions, uh, marginalized communities, and in our case, we, we do specifically advocate for disability communities, but we recognize the intersection that we have with other communities as well, that we are not designing employment systems, HR practices, taxing, public health around the people that frankly need it the most, that need those services. We, we, we believe as an agency that people with disabilities probably interact more with state government than any other non-politically involved person because they in, interact with uh, Department of Health when they're young to be identified uh, at, at birth or, or shortly after. Then they interact with Department of Education with their IEPs to spe uh, specialize their education programming to meet their needs. Then they interact with human services to get support services, to get uh, included into society to so that they're not institutionalized like they used to be decades ago or even more recent than that. And they uh, are frequently working with health as they try to do preventative public health. And so uh, most people, you know, they think of, of government interactions and think of getting their tabs, maybe a DNR certificate or, or license um, to go park somewhere or go fishing. And that's kind of it, or maybe revenue for their taxes. Um, but folks with disabilities are interacting with all sorts of types of government uh, all the time in order to get, maintain, or, or advance their rights. And so whenever there's something inaccessible, that is a barrier. Um, and another example of this would be uh, our state has a plain language mandate, which means uh, there's an executive order in place that all the communication that comes out of our state government that's intended for public use needs to be in plain language. And that's a way to increase access for all communities to understand their rights and their and what their services uh, are in place for them. Um, so we're trying to make systemic change. We're trying to raise awareness to this issue after this letter came out. We feel like we kind of made it kind of okay in a way to talk about not going to the fair. We certainly don't take credit for everybody not attending the fair, but, um, and by the way, I, sh I should add that we had a, a great conversation with a general manager, Jerry Hammer, uh, about this issue. And we look forward to, to working together and going again in, in the future. Um, but uh, we, we, we felt like we made it kind of okay to talk about maybe not going to the fair and being okay with what might be some backlash um, from people who uh, don't agree with our justifications or our issues. And then also having this bigger broader conversation about systemic barriers and um, public health issues that um, that we have. Uh, one significant public health issue that we have, and we've made some strides recently on, is oral health for people with disabilities is traditionally been a huge disparity, uh, particularly among people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. Now, hmm. Department of Health has recently come out with a, a plan, their 2020 to 2030 health plan uh, for oral health, and that includes increasing services for uh, Minnesotans with disabilities. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that's implemented. But uh, a lot of oral health, uh, particularly those who depend on state uh, insurance or state services to get medical care, are, are really lacking in that area. And we know that oral health connects to many other parts of our, our health as a whole body. So there's many examples of these kind of systems barriers that people experience. I'm really glad you bring up the idea of um, making it okay to talk about not going to the fair, 
because I, so I'm a huge fan of the fair. I am an avid fair goer. I, I think I've probably been every year since I was about two. Um, I've never missed the fair and I will be missing the fair this year. And I think this, this letter did was kind of like the final, the final piece of information that I needed to make that decision. Um, because I was weighing, you know, maybe I can go early, maybe I, you know, all these different things. Um, but this just kind of brought it back to, for my community, for our community, Minnesota as a whole, it's probably better that I just don't go, um, just to maintain health and safety. And I, I think, you know, this is not an agency that I've interacted with and, and still to see the, the sort of, um, the reach that you had with this letter. And I think I saw it on Twitter or maybe someone sent it to me, but it was immediately, I was like, oh, this is something that we really do need to talk about. Um, you, you said earlier also that you didn't expect the kind of splash that the letter would create. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, some of the responses you got? Yeah, absolutely. So first I want to focus on the community response and then I'll kind of get to the media. Um, so I would say the overwhelming majority, you know, 95 plus percent of people responded saying, thank you so much. This is exactly what I needed to hear or read. There is a video version coming out so that it can be more accessible with a sign language interpreter with audio description that should be up by the time probably actually that you, you hear this podcast. So we do want to make sure that it's fully accessible to everybody in the most ways possible. But they said, you know, this is what I this is what I've been trying to say throughout all of COVID, and no one's given that message a voice. And so, that kind of again speaks to this. Um, this is about the fair, but it's also about something bigger than the fair. Mm-hmm. Just like with you, Haley, um, for my family, we we adore the fair. We went to the fair. Uh, I don't think this would be something that public health would advise, but I think three days after having one of our kids, my wife was like, Nope, we have to go. Anyway. <laughs> so, so we went anyway and we didn't stay very long. We had to hit some of our great, our great stops of food. And that's basically what we do is just go food to food, to food, to food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we probably stayed only for an hour that time, but we're like, no, we have to check it off the list. This is super important to us. So uh, and I think maybe this is uniquely Minnesotan. I'm not sure, but it really is a kind of a, a cultural, I don't know, cornerstone or foundational point of our experience as Minnesotans, right? It's the fair. So it's the most attended fair in the country. I believe Texas has an overall attendance record number, but theirs is twice as long. So (laughs) we kind of go back and forth about who's this better, but they also have a much bigger state, right? So, um, so I know we're very proud of it. I, I love the fair. Uh, I communicated that to them directly that this is nothing personal, but yeah, but we needed to have this conversation and, uh, so first of all, yeah, so the, the community, we did get a couple people that gave us some great feedback and um, any feedback that people wanted to share, we were happy to hear it, you know, that we were, we were open to that. We can't pretend to understand everybody's situation or, or perspective. And so we do our best, but we're open to all that feedback. But it was overwhelmingly positive and inspirational. We feel that that was the response that we got from people. Now from the media, um, we did pass it along to a few media members that we knew might be interested in this story, but I was really only expecting to get maybe one or two people that might be interested. And then that would kind of be it. Uh, that's, that's a very normal um, spotlight 
on a disability issue, I guess, to put it in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and to get now, I think I've, I've seen 10 or 12 different articles written. I've been busy the last week or two doing interviews uh, more than I've done my whole life collectively. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think we reached over, we have a very small social media footprint compared to the news media organizations. But when we kind of did some back of the envelope math, we think we probably hit close to a million people maybe uh, with wow. this letter. Um, and uh, although interestingly, that that's not translated to nearly that many actual reads of the article of the of the uh, letter itself, but people are at least reading the articles about the letter, which is which is still important. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we really thought that we would be getting the attention of the the fair and maybe some city and county folks to to reconsider their positions, and then maybe a couple retweets or or mentions or uh, Facebook shares, and and that was kind of kind of be it. Um, but no, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And now folks have reached out to us saying, well, could you write a letter about this? And could you write a letter about that? And we've kind of gotten all this new flood of requests for more resources and support, uh, which is which is wonderful to hear, uh, but also a challenge to figure out where we can invest that, that kind of time and energy into. Yeah. Do you think that um, you've there was a, a like a groundswell of support from folks outside of the disability community? like is different than maybe something else you would put out? Yes, absolutely. So while we have the kind of famous saying of the disability rights movement, movement excuse me, that, you know, there's nothing about us without us is one of the, the famous sayings that people would march to or, or write on signs as they protest at different uh, legislative capitals. Um, the truth is that while the disability community is something like 20% of the population, it's almost none of the leadership of mm -hmm. organizations and government uh, at any level. So we really do need and want that collaboration with people who would consider themselves allies or just people who in this one specific situation agree with us in this case. So, so we absolutely need those people who saw this as an issue that was beyond themselves and believe that society is better when we, think of everybody are inclusive of everybody and that this issue was worth their efforts. Maybe it doesn't impact them directly, but they saw it as something that was important to them or struck a, a chord with them that they could agree with. And so I think, you know, a lot of folks in the media, a lot of folks on social media, those people who continue to amplify the message and support it were uh, absolutely key to this kind of taking on a life of its own bigger than we imagined. Since the fair is one of your main ways of sharing your information and getting um, folks connected to resources, et cetera, what are some of your plans um, for making up for some of that work that would normally be done at the state fair this year? We're having a lot of conversations about what we could do instead. So there are certain opportunities that we just can't replicate. Um, giving out bags for emergency preparedness with whistles and brochures and curriculum for teachers, things like that, that are just not really feasible to do. I don't think that we'll be participating in like county or local fairs instead of the state fair. So all those are kind of off the table. What we're looking at is maybe some community engagement events that would have to be virtual instead for now. Um, and then 
we still have the video that we intended on, we intended to play during the state fair of interviews with people with disabilities and how they experienced COVID and how it impacted them. And so we do intend to still distribute that video, hopefully in the next one, two, maybe three weeks from now. And that hopefully will do some of the work that we wanted to do about shining a light on some of these really personal, uh, unfortunate stories that I think tell the story better than uh, other formats might might do. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's also very possible that we might just have to take a loss this year and we really can't replicate that experience and that reach and influence that we would normally have. Um, so my last question for you is, what are your hopes for our healthcare system? There are a few specific issues in the healthcare system that don't get a lot of attention, but are, are pretty big in, in the disability advocacy world. The first would be that for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, that hearing aids are not something that's typically covered by health insurance. They cost a couple thousand dollars per ear, so to speak. So a pair might cost four to $6,000 with no insurance coverage. They're considered um, something closer to a cosmetic or replaceable uh, device like a pair of glasses. And so Medicare is by law forbidden to cover hearing aids and insurance policies that um, companies offer almost never include hearing aid insurance coverage. We are pushing the state at the state level to increase that, to change that, but that would only affect about 20% of policies that the state can regulate. So we have a, a federal and a system, state system level issue there. A couple other things are around uh, durable medical equipment and the costs of, or reimbursement rates, depending on which side of the system you're on for customized wheelchairs, customized equipment for people with disabilities, uh, particularly that's um, along the lines of for mobility purposes. Those are uh, very expensive and the push to try to cut the size of the health and human services budget bill can sometimes result in cutting the funding or the reimbursement rates for manufacturers or service providers who serve the disability community. And so those are a couple of really specific issues that we're experiencing. I think the larger issue is that many healthcare providers are not as accessible as they should be when they consider their clientele. So folks with disabilities oftentimes see their primary care or specialists more than others do, and they still struggle to get accommodations like sign language interpreters or to get sensory friendly areas for folks who have autism or to have fully accessible facilities for people who utilize wheelchairs to get around and and wheel around. So there's some kind of real system level issues there. And then kind of at that even bigger level, there is an issue where if we want to make data informed decisions about how to respond to emergencies like pandemics uh, that are directly affecting or connected to public health, if we're not collecting data on disability and health outcomes, then we really don't have an ability to say, this is working or this is not working for people with disabilities. So there are a couple policy issues that are very obvious and, and need attention. 
And then there's kind of this bigger structural issue that that also needs to have attention paid to it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to your team and all the advocates that came together to put out this um, this really important letter. And I'm going to make sure to link to it so people can check it out if they want to read it. Um, but thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been a delightful time and uh, an honor and privilege to be here. So I, I really appreciate it, Haley. Thank you. Yeah, take care. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. healthcare story that you want to share? Let us know. Send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at OurHealthMN. That's O-U-R-H-E-A-L-T-H-M-N. You can also get in touch with us through our website. Head to ourstoriesourhealth.org and click on contact us.